This morning we are continuing forward in this series of messages that are being taken from the phrases of Psalm 23. So we've been looking at that several weeks, but only a phrase at a time, and I've been calling them scenes. The scenes of Psalm 23, and we've been going through those active phrases that take place in Psalm 23. And today we are up to scene number four. That comes in Psalm 23. It's the phrase that we find in verse 3 of Psalm 23 that says, He guides me in paths of righteousness. For that, we're going to jump today to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 is where we're going to read something today about what it means for us as God's people to live along the path of righteousness to which God guides us. So today, Proverbs 3. I'm going to read the first 10 verses where the wisdom writer says this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then, Your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So something from Proverbs 3 today. You know, it struck me as I was uh, putting this one together. Uh, I, I keep a database catalog of all the sermons that I've ever written throughout the years, and this is only the second sermon I've ever written from the book of Proverbs, so that's... Shame on me for not paying attention to the whole counsel of Scripture there. But, but I think as we get into Proverbs then, maybe it's good at the front end to note some of the features about Proverbs themselves. All right, So, so I'm going to start today with just a, a quick explanation of what the Proverbs are and how we understand those things. So that as we read some of these Proverbs, we we understand and know what it is we're reading. Because Proverbs, I think Proverbs is one of those books of the Bible which more than any other can be so easily misinterpreted and so easily misunderstood. Because Proverbs are filled with so many sayings of the wisdom writer and, and often we struggle to know how to hear and understand those, what they mean, how they apply. So, something that helps us as we read these words of Proverbs. In general, I will say this, that that the Proverbs contain sayings of general outcome, not specific formula. All right? The Proverbs are sayings of general outcome, not specific formula. And we'll see what that means as we go through this passage and how some of that works. Because often that is the mistake that people bring into Proverbs, that that they see it as a specific formula. Formula of, well, if I do this, then God gives that. You see, that's sort of the hook that several health and wealth gospel preachers 
try to, try to convince you on. That really the Christian faith is about getting everything you want. And then you read Proverbs that way and you can pretty easily misinterpret the Proverbs that way. So today, let's see Proverbs as they're intended to be seen as, as this collection of sayings that point towards a general outcome and not these specific individual one-to-one formulas. All right? Now then, let's look at what we see here today. Proverbs 3. It's written in your bulletin. You see there the, the first 10 verses. But if you have a Bible open and you're looking or you're looking in a Bible at home, notice that we only read the first 10 verses of Proverbs 3. It, it's actually many more verses long than that. And it's, I'm dividing it into three sections. And you can see that because in the Proverbs you find an address that sets up the sections. It, it, we saw it in verse 1, the informal address of my son. Now, it could be that the author of Proverbs is actually addressing one of his children in a teaching. It could be a generic uh, title for the teacher addressing students in general, but it's the address formula there that we see in verse 1. And if you were to look at all of chapter 3 of Proverbs, you would see that it's repeated again in verse 11 and again in verse 21. That's why there are three sections to Proverbs 3, because of that address of my son. So that's why we're looking at the first 10 verses. It's a single unit in that. Now then, here's what I want us to see that makes sense of this, because so easily when you read Proverbs, you just kind of bounce from one verse to the next, and wow, these are all maybe seemingly kind of random. How do we take them one verse at a time? What is he talking about? How do we understand it? Well, today I want us to see that in, that in these first 10 verses that there are five admonitions. Five admonitions that bounce on the odd number of verses. So, one, three, five, seven, nine. Those verses in this passage each contain some kind of an admonition. And they have a progression to them. Do you notice that when we see it? That verse three, five, th- one, three, five, seven, and 9 all have this building admonition with an appeal that takes place there. So the admonitions that we saw there, Right coming right away in verse 1. Keep my commandments. In verse 3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Verse 5, trust in the Lord. Verse 7, fear the Lord. Verse 9, honor the Lord. Do you see the progression of these teachings, these admonitions as they come? It begins in verse 1 with this appeal to the teacher himself. Listen to what I'm teaching you. Then in verse 3, it moves to an appeal to love. That love and faithfulness should never leave you. And then there's this triple progression in verses 5, 7, and 9 where it's an appeal directly to the Lord. And it's using the divine name of the Lord. In your English Bibles, you always identify that in the NIV as the word Lord in all capital letters. But in in the Hebrew scripture, that's the divine name of God, Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush at Mount Sinai. You only find that reference here three times in verses 5, 7, and 9 with a direct appeal to the name Yahweh. However, if you're looking closely, right, um, if you look at all of Proverbs 3, you will find that in that second section, beginning at verse 11, going to verse 20, that the name Yahweh is also three times there. And in that final section, beginning at verse 21 to the end, the name Yahweh also appears three times there. It's intentional, is what I'm getting at. It's not random, it's not a mistake. 
that the wisdom writer is very intentionally placing the name of the Lord in this psalm for us to catch and notice and be mindful of. So it builds in that progression to where ultimately in what the wisdom writer is telling us about where we seek wisdom, where our wisdom comes from, how we know what wisdom is, it brings us ultimately to the Lord with those three appeals that are given there to trust in the Lord, to fear the Lord. Not fear as in be scared, but that's a Hebrew word that means have reverence, be in awe of the Lord. And then to honor the Lord. That's the Hebrew word kavod, which means glory, glorify the Lord. That's where the the wisdom writer brings us. I think if we were to try to pull these admonitions together and say, well, well, what's, how do we really capture these in one statement or, or one meaning? What are these different appeals or admonitions after? I think there's a good summary of that that we can find in verse 7, actually. Verse 7 that says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Or we could, I suppose we could read that as a negative, as a warning. Be careful. Don't live like that. It, it's a, a warning against pride in that sense. But rather than look at it as a negative or as a warning, I'm wondering, how can we flip that to a positive? What is the wisdom writer trying to tell us we should do in that sense? That is a summary of these verses that we see here. I think the positive side of that would be this. Stay teachable. Be people who are open to the correction of God in your life. And within that, the wisdom writer says this, right? He says, lean not on your own understanding. Rather, submit to the Lord, and he will make your path straight. So something about this teachable moment, this moment of being open to God to, to mold and shape my life and who I am, to give me correction where I need correction, to give me affirmation where I'm walking in the right steps. Somehow within that, he points this then toward this path, a straight path, or as we've seen it called here in Psalm 23, a path of righteousness. Something about that then, this path of righteousness that we see before us, the straight path that God has given to us, that that a path then, a pathway implies a journey, right? A path, a road, by nature of what it is, gives you the impression that you're going somewhere. It's not stuck in one place, but it's somewhere to move, somewhere to go. It's a process then, isn't it? Something that brings us forward. We can say that in our lives with God then, that there's always a place for us to grow, always a place to move, always new instruction for us to learn. We say then, well, within our church, that follows the, in the tradition of John Calvin, John Calvin, who was one of the reformers, during the time of the Reformation, and in our church, which is a part of a denomination called the Christian Reformed Church, the the very word, reformed, 
captures that sense that, that God is shaping us, reforming us. We say that we are reformed and reforming. All of that captured in maybe the bigger theological, doctrinal word that we call sanctification. That we are being sanctified by God on this path of righteousness. So this journey that we take, this wisdom that we read, this journey before us, this path before us, all has to do with God sanctifying his people. God leading his people in a direction that builds them up in holiness, in his righteousness. And along this path of righteousness then, the psalmist David declares that it is the Lord who guides our steps, right? That, that it's not sort of this thing that we have to discover and build for ourselves. That, that the path of righteousness is not this mystery or this secret to be unlocked, but rather it is God himself who guides the steps of his people along this path, along this journey, along this life of growing more and more into the holiness of God that he gives and shares with his people. All of those things wrapped up in in this admonition that we see coming in the progression of these verses of Proverbs 3. This appeal to stay teachable because by being teachable before God, he guides our steps in this path of righteousness that comes forward. How does that look then? So where does this path of righteousness lead? How do you know and understand that? Maybe a way to help us get into that is thinking about something that makes sense in our world today that that we see as commonplace for many of us. All good athletes have coaches in some form or another. Athletes who want to improve and become better at the game that they compete in do that, well, yes, through practice, through determination, through study, but but also by the leading and guiding of a good coach. We can see that sometimes it's obvious that you see a well-coached team and you see the results of that. I remember back in the 1980s, you know, at that time, um, the Detroit Pistons basketball team had this group of rather unruly players who were known to be physically aggressive. In fact, in the NBA, they had a nickname, if you remember that from that time, that the team was called the Bad Boys, right? But it was Coach Chuck Daly who took the unruly players of that team and got them to work together so that they could play the game together And eventually then, in 1989 and 1990, the Pistons won the NBA championship. Coaching helped bring all of that unruly talent together so they could work together and play together. Sometimes the coaching is behind the scenes. You don't see it. You don't recognize it. You don't even know it's there. I I think maybe particularly in individual sports, right? You, You see a professional golfer out on the golf course or you see a tennis player who plays. You don't see the coach right there. What you don't see are the countless hours of practice that take place on the driving range and the putting green and the tennis club, perfecting the swings and the hits, perfecting all the motions that go into that. The coaching 
that goes behind that. That's always there. Even among the top and best athletes in the world, there are coaches that help them along. But notice this, that, that even, even with the best athletes in the world who have the best coaches in the world, there's not a guarantee that now every hit will be a home run. Right? There's not a guarantee that, that every putt is going to get into the hole. There's not a guarantee that every shot is going to be a basket. Now, there is a general trajectory, a general trajectory of following the teachings of the coach, right? that it will bring you closer to that, that there is a general outcome to that. But it's not a guarantee every single time. All right, don't let me, I don't want to take this analogy too far because we, we shouldn't walk out of here then saying that in some sense, okay, God is our coach and he's just giving us life tips. That's not it. That's not it at all. In fact, I think maybe the better application would be to say, let's think of the wisdom writer, the author of Proverbs, as the one who's giving the tips, the coach. But as we've said, it's not a one-to-one formula, but rather it's a picture that brings us toward a general outcome. You see, because it would be a mistake then to think of, of Proverbs as, as one commentator put it, that we should not think of the Proverbs that, that point toward God as being a vending machine. I just put these things in, and then God is obligated to dispense these blessings out. That's not how it works any more than good coaching can guarantee every hit is a home run or every shot will make a basket. But it all points towards a general outcome to which we're looking. So what is that general outcome and how does that look in this passage? In these verses that we're looking at, so we looked at some admonitions. Now think about some of the applications. If the admonitions came in the odd-numbered verses, the applications we see come in the even-numbered verses. And this time you can find them in a way that centers. Centers meaning um, so often in the Bible we see this pattern where, where the main point comes right in the middle. And here we see that as well that as these applications come together, that they point towards the middle in verse 6. So in verses 2 and 4, you find this reference to, well, in your Bible it's called peace and prosperity, but in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew scripture it's one word, shalom. And in verse 4, about reputation, standing among others. At the other end, in verses 8 and 10, you find this application that talks about good health and bountiful harvest. And in the middle of those things, in verse 6, you find the reference there to the straight path. Or what we bounce from Psalm 23 with, the path of righteousness. How does that look in our lives? Uh, How do we understand some of these applications? So what does it mean that if we follow the wisdom of Proverbs that we find these things? Shalom, reputation, good health, bountiful harvest. How does that all come together as this straight path of righteousness? How do we understand that in our lives? Well, maybe we can just start by considering that first one. 
which in our English Bible, I know it says peace and prosperity, but, but in Hebrew, that's shalom. You've heard me talk about shalom before, that, that shalom, even though our Bibles translate that as peace so often, that the better English word for understanding that is flourishing. That shalom is about flourishing. And what we see and understand in this is that, especially in the context of Proverbs, where, where it's not an individual formula for success, but it's a general outcome for God's creation as a whole, that shalom illustrates that. That shalom is this cosmic pattern of God's flourishing of his creation, with each one of us being a part of that flourishing creation that we see around us. That we understand then that this path of righteousness is is something that's not just individual, it's not just me, but it is an outcome that God places before us for his entire creation to be guided through this path of righteousness. Shalom reminds us of that. That shalom is not shalom if I am the only one experiencing it. Right? If I live in a community where, you know what, maybe I'm flourishing, but everyone else around me is not, that's not shalom. Because shalom is a shared experience. One commentator that I read this week puts it this way. He says, believers cannot enjoy shalom without practicing shalom. That we need to be people who, in fact, engage in helping others to flourish in order for us to know what that flourishing is ourselves, right? Believers cannot enjoy shalom without practicing shalom. And this is where it becomes evident to us that, you know what? Let's confess. We're not very good at that, are we? We, as a community, as a society, as a nation, as a world, struggle with that, don't we? We're not very good at walking a straight path when it comes to sharing the shalom of God with others. Maybe we see glimpses of that. Maybe, maybe I've got my, my huddle of my favorite, my favorite friends or my family, and, and I'm willing to, to help boost them and, and see them flourish. But somewhere there are lines drawn, and somewhere there are ends to that. Somewhere there are boundaries that we make, and we see evidence in our world where we have pulled back from that straight path of sharing the shalom of God so that all may flourish. It's become evident to us. And in that, we see our need for Jesus, don't we? It's in the realization of our failure to walk that path ourselves. It's in the realization that, you know what, try as we might, we can't get it right, at least not all the time. And it's in that moment that we realize, you know what, we need help. We can't do this alone. It's in that moment where we see our need for Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has brought the path of righteousness to us again. In Jesus, our steps upon this path lead us toward his perfect righteousness.
In Jesus, we see that God redeems and restores and brings that to us. You know, it, it's not just that in Jesus that he's, he's the example that shows us the way, but, but we see, as it says in Psalm 23, that he, in fact, guides our steps. It's not that Jesus said, hey, the path, it's over there. It's that Jesus said, I am going to bring the path to you. I will pick you up. I will guide your steps. I will take you every step of the way. In Jesus, we realize the fulfillment of that. That even though the shalom flourishing of God's world has not yet reached its promised fulfillment when Jesus returns and makes all things new again at that glorious resurrection. Even though we have not realized that yet, that still, even now, Jesus sets our steps on a path that leads in that direction, that gives us glimpses of his shalom in this world. He guides our step on the path and invites us to his perfect righteousness. That, that statement right there, right, the statement that I, I put up on the screen, that Jesus guides our steps upon a path which invites us into his perfect righteousness. That is what we in the church call justification. That God has justified us with his perfect righteousness so that we may take step upon that path. But that's only part of the statement. If I were to finish the sentence, I would say this. Jesus guides our steps upon a path which invites us to his perfect righteousness so that we may learn to share his perfect shalom with others. That part is the sanctification. The part that God is building us to be the part that God has called and equipped the people of his church to be the light in the community around us so that we may share that perfect shalom with others. May we then be people who, before God, stay teachable to understand the corrections he has for our lives. May we be people who understand that In Jesus, we are redeemed and restored by his perfect righteousness. And may we be people then who learn how to share that shalom with others. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that in your word that that you reveal that you guide us in the path that we could never find or make by ourselves. Thank you that in your word that that you show us that way of wisdom. Lord, may you open our hearts to remain teachable before you. May you give us what we need to follow in those steps so that as you bring your perfect shalom into the world, that we may be people who more and more echo that through the lives that we live for others to see. Use us for that, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Would you please?